Well, um, we have uh, we prayed for our global outreach team, and we've been thinking about our ministry partners. Uh, one of the our ministry partners, they have an Instagram account. I follow it, and that is Team Lviv, our ministry partners in Ukraine. This morning, I was uh, looking and, and on their Instagram um, story or reel or something. I, I'm not uh, as well versed in that as as uh, maybe I should be, or I don't like putting it like that. Anyway, um, it said that Ukraine has been at war for 164 days. It's a good reminder. Reminds me to pray. According to the Foreign Relations Global Conflict Tracker, there are some 27 situations of conflict internationally right now. They rate these into three categories. They put them in three categories. One is um, worsening. One category is unchanging. Third category is improving. Of the 27, not one of them is improving. Syria has been in a full-fledged civil war for the last 11 years. That's nothing compared to Miramar. It's been in civil war for 60 years. It's not to mention Afghanistan, Lebanon, South Sudan, Ethiopia. Right now, one-fourth of the world's population lives in conflict-affected places. One out of four people. Wondering, will my home be here in the next weeks or months or years? One in four people wondering if, if bullets are going to whiz by their head at night. Last year, 84 million people were displaced. This year, it's estimated that 274, three times that, will need human rights assistance. Now, those are just stats. But it gets real when you read personal stories, like Meshel, who's a four-year-old boy who lives in Yemen. Yemen, who is about a quarter of a million people now have died of either war or starvation because of the war. So hungry was this little boy that he was gnawing his fingers. It's excruciatingly tragic. the conflict we see across the globe. And sometimes it's easy to remove ourselves from it. In 1993, Samuel Huntington, the political scientist and theorist who is at the University of Harvard, wrote a very influential, important article called Clash of Civilizations. Three years later, he turned that into a book uh, that I was forced to read in college. Huntington's thesis is that after the Cold War, it, it will no longer be nation against nation. That's not what's going to actually uh, fuel international conflicts. But what is going to fuel international conflicts primarily is cultural and religious identities. Interestingly, Huntington said, this is not actually um, something new, but a return 
to how it's always been. That, that the Cold War, in essence, was a, a bracket or a blip. But what actually fuels conflicts is these deep cultural divisions. Unfortunately, I think, in large measure and in broad strokes, Huntington's thesis has proven correct. We see that internationally, but we also see it nationally with the deep cultural divides that we have. Regional, political. You know, the, the country in which we have been called to serve and live, the United States of America, it's an interesting experiment. At the beginning of it, uh, there was a, a phrase that thinks on the dollar bill a Latin phrase, e pluribus unum, means out of many one. And the idea is that out of all these different differences, we could have unity. But that has been incredibly difficult to maintain. And the more differences we have, the more difficult it is to maintain. And the more differences, the more we find differences and we feel differences in, in the world and the, the smaller the globe gets with technology, the more we bump up against these differences and clashes happen. And so one of the primary questions that we have as, as people, as humans in the world is this, how can we maintain unity amidst all these cultural differences? Micah 4 gives his answer to that question. But before we look at Micah's answer to that question, let me pray for us. Lord, we are a, a conflict-marked people struggling to know what to do with with all our differences that works its way even into the church. And so we pray that you would give us a vision, your vision, for unity amidst diversity. Open our eyes and our ears that we may hear your word afresh. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a couple months ago, many of you knew, I flew back to Cambridge, England. I was there for six weeks. I landed there um, haven't, having haven't been there for some 13 years, just about. Now, you have to understand, when I was living in Cambridge before for three years, I was there for, I think, something like the 18th, uh, 800th, sorry, 800th anniversary of the university. That's a pretty old city. All right. So you think in a pretty old city, you're looking around, things don't really change much, you know? Uh, and so I went back to Cambridge and doesn't feel like that long ago. And so I expected everything to be the same, except when I got off the train, everything was different. 
Uh, and they, it used to be that there was this tiny little road and uh, no shops or anything, and you went into the train station, but now you get off the train and there's this massive building in front of you, and there are all these restaurants, and there are all these shops, and then there's other, this other huge uh, office spaces, and there are apartments, and then there's this food court, and there's just so much that was different. And I thought, man, it is amazing to see how this place has transformed. Have you ever been back to a city and are a part of the city that you haven't been to in a while and you thought this is like a complete transformation? Maybe some of you went away from Santa Barbara for a while and you flew back in and you remember the airport and the difference in the airport because you actually were inside a building. You're like, I'm inside a building at an airport in Santa Barbara. This is amazing, right? What is happening? Uh, it's amazing to see how cities transform. I remember being in Berlin. I was there some about 13 years, same amount of time after the Berlin Wall fell, and I was in East Berlin. I used to think 13 years was a long time. Now I realize that it's not so long anymore. But people were talking about just how this pocket in the East had been transformed with an arts district. The transformation of cities. Micah 4 presents this transformation of a city to understand the transformation that Micah is talking about and to feel its impact, we have to go back and review where we've been the last couple weeks. If you are just joining us, then let me catch you up. Micah is written during a time when there is a crisis, an external crisis and an internal crisis. The external crisis is that the Assyrian army is on the march, and they are threatening everything in their sight including the northern kingdom, which they've already demolished, and now the southern kingdom of Israel. But there's a worse crisis internally. The crisis internally is that there's corruption all around, and it goes to the highest ranks. You see, the rich are off the backs of the poor getting richer. It's cannibalism. They're evicting people from house and home. They're kicking them out. They're taking the shirts on their, off their backs of their, as they go, and they're doing so with impunity. The reason that they're doing so with impunity is because the magistrates, the judges, those people who should be holding them accountable to the law, they're taking bribes. And the religious leaders, they aren't much of a help either because the priests and the prophets, you see, they're being bankrolled by these rich people, and because of that, they're letting that affect their message. It's corruption everywhere. And God says, because of that, I'm going to come in judgment. And Zion, the place where my temple dwells, where my presence is supposed to dwell, it is going to be sacked by the Assyrians. The temple will be demolished and turned to rubble, and my presence will leave. You will not experience my blessing. That was chapter 3. Chapter 4, we have this complete transformation. What we find is that God is not given up on His people. He hasn't given up on His temple. And He hasn't given up on their mission. And so He raises His people and Zion from the dead. This is the vision that Micah 4 gives us. It's one of complete transformation. The first transformation, bit of transformation we see, is a transformed witness in the people of God. The transformed witness of the people of God. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And it shall come to pass in latter days 
that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Now remember, the mountain of the Lord is Jerusalem. That is the city on which Jerusalem is built, and there is God's temple mount. His temple where his presence dwells. And so what we see here is that the nations are flowing, streaming to God's temple. It's a complete reversal. See, what was happening is Jerusalem's leaders were being taken off into exile. And now the nations are streaming back to God's temple. And why are they going there? Look, verse 2 goes on that he, that is God, may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Do you see the contrast? Before, God's word was being obscured. It was being shrouded because the, the priest and the prophet's teaching was being influenced by financial gain. And because their teaching was being influenced by financial gain, God's word was being obscured. His life-giving, world-altering word was being obscured. But now it goes forth free of charge. And the nations are eating it up. Whereas before God's word was shrouded by his people's perversity, now... His word shines forth from his people's purity that we may walk in the path of the Lord, that he may teach us his ways. In Titus chapter 2, verse 10, it talks about God's people adorning the doctrine of God with their lives, making it attractive and beautiful. That is what is happening here. You see, the nations are being attracted and they're streaming and they're saying, come. The nations say, come. Did you see that? Look at verse 2. Don't miss it. The nations say to one another, come, let us go. You know, it's often the case that, that the most active bringers you have to church are those who don't even know God yet. And they say, come. Come, you got to hear what I'm hearing. You got to wrestle with what I'm wrestling with. That's what happens. The nations are saying, come. Because, because, Israel's witness is so clear and so attractive and so influential. Look how expansive the influence is, verse 3. He shall judge between many peoples and decide disputes for strong nations where? Far away. This is an expansive influence that Micah is talking about. You know, when I was growing up, we used to say the Pledge of Allegiance every day. It would come over the loudspeaker. And since this was after the 1950s, my version of the Pledge of Allegiance said, One Nation Under God. I didn't really question who that God was growing up because of my context. But the more and more I've grown up, the more and more I wonder, how many different gods are we talking about with the various people that are professing this? One nation under which God? Whose God? See, right now what we have is a vision of one nation under really many gods. If you were to talk to people and say, and they said, I believe in God, and you asked them, well, what God is it that you believed in? You'd probably find that it look a lot different than the God that you believe in. It's, what we're trying to do is one nation under many gods. 
What Micah is presenting is many nations under one God, the God of Israel, who rules them not by a scepter or a sword, but by his word. Because that's how God rules. And, and, and notice this has present implications, Micah thinks. Verse 5, for all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Now, what is going on here? Verse 5 kind of seems like a non sequitur. Micah is painting this vision of the future, and the nations are streaming. And then he says, each of them are walking according to their own gods. What's going on? What's going on is Micah is returning to the present. And Micah is saying, look, we're going to live God's future now, even if the nations aren't streaming in yet. Even if they aren't attractive yet, even if the nations are living in idolatry, we're going to live in light of this future when God will bring the nations in. We are going to be a clear and present witness now in anticipation of what is to come. I know someone who went to the University of Tennessee. They were at the University of Tennessee, and they went to RUF, Reform University Fellowship, a ministry that we support, our, our denomination's campus ministry. They had a very eccentric campus minister there. All RUF campus ministers are eccentric. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, and he used, to, he used to turn, and he would preach to a section in the room that didn't have any people. And he'd just walk over, like, all you are over here, and this section's empty, and he would just start preaching. And everybody's like, this guy is so strange. But I like what he has to say. So finally, one of the, I don't know, students or one of his interns had the audacity to be like, hey, um, why do you keep preaching to the empty seats over there? He said, because I'm preaching to your friends who you haven't brought yet. Tim Keller says that if you want a unbelievers to come, if you want people who aren't yet committed to the Christian faith to come, you have to start preaching and acting as if they're there, talking to them anyway. That's what Micah is presenting, a people who live in anticipation of what is to come when the nations flood in. And if this has present implications for Micah, how much more so for us? You see, because years later, there was a Jewish rabbi. His name was Jesus. He called his disciples up onto a mountain, a hill. And what he said to them was this, you are the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill. You are the resurrected Zion to whom the nations are going to stream. You're the one Micah was talking about. It's not a building in Jerusalem, but it's my disciples who follow me, who live in this way. And so how much more must we continue to be a people who proclaim God's word fully and faithfully and freely and clearly? Look at verse 2. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And Jesus says, that's you. And so if we are committed to one thing, we need to be committed to the clear proclamation of the gospel and the clear teaching of God's word. People should know that when they come to this community, they can come and they can hear what God has to say. 
whether it's our community groups, whether it's in our children's classes, whether it's when they're coming to Friday nights out or Saturday mornings out with our kids, whether it's coming on a Sunday morning, they should be able to hear God's word. But this also has implications because I think it means that we have to be a people who practice radical hospitality. Because remember, the nations are saying, come, let us go. Which assumes what? There's a community there that's ready to receive them. That says, welcome. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're here. Which means that we need to be a community that expects people who aren't convinced of what we are convinced of in our midst. That have plenty of space for skeptics. And plenty of space for people who wrestle with questions and ask hard questions. Who, who don't know what Micah is from Malachi. Oh, wait, that's most of us. Who don't know what Micah is from Matthew. And we say, come. Who don't know that they aren't supposed to go out on Saturday because you have to get a good night's sleep so you can get up on Sunday morning. Who don't know that, that there's a certain propriety that you're supposed to have in social situations with dress and a certain way in which you're supposed to talk to one another or how you're not supposed to lose your temper with, with your family members. They, they don't know those things. It's okay. Say welcome. Come. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're here. It, it, it's really interesting, verse 2. Because verse 2 says the nations are coming and they're learning to walk in the ways of God because God's law is going forth. God's Torah. Some of you ask me, what have I been studying? Is it all right if I geek out for a second? Just a little bit? Yes, we're that kind of church. So I'm going to geek out a second. Here's what I've been studying. Consider this. Micah says that the nations are going to come and they're going to learn God's ways and follow them. They're going to learn God's law. But remember, what was God's law? God's law was a Jewish law for Jews. If you follow God's law, what does that mean? It means you get circumcised. It means you follow a certain calendar. It means that you, you eat in certain ways, you separate from certain people. It, it, it means that, that you, you celebrate Israel's history and their festivals and their feasts. It means, in essence, that, that if you follow God's law, then that's basically the definition of being a Jew. You are a Jew. So wait a second. How do the nations follow God's law and still remain the nations? Because if the nations follow God's law, they're no longer nations, they're Israel. It must be that Micah envisions not just a transformed community. It's not just Zion that's transformed. It's God's law that's transformed. God's law is transformed so that it is not instantiated in any one cultural form, Jews. It's no longer uh, beholden to just Israel. But it's transformed in such a way in which it can flow in and out of all the nations so that the nations can still follow God and be the nations. Which means what? It means that radical hospitality means that we don't force people to be Jews, much less Americans, to come follow Jesus. Or whatever else our cultural sensibilities and national heritage is. 
It means we say that, that there is a way of following God that's not tied to any cultural, particular cultural instantiation. Because you see, God, he is for the nations coming to him. All the nations come and they worship the God of Jacob, Israel's God. See, we can honor differences and still have unity because the law is going to go forth. And we have much more reason to do this, to live with this attractive witness and to offer radical hospitality because you know this is already starting to come true, right? I mean, how many of you are Judeans? How many of you trace your lineage back to Judea? In other words, how many of you are Jews? Maybe some, but not many. Which means what? You have come. And why did you come to this community and become part of this community and try to learn the ways of the Lord? Because you heard the truth because of the witness of this community somewhere. You heard in a church amongst God's people the truth about our desperate need for a Savior and the truth of God's love and how He has provided a Savior. You heard the truth of what it means to be human before Him and how to live in His world, and you said, Come, and you are here, so that you may be taught the ways of the Lord. Don't you see, this is already starting to be fulfilled. So I don't know if you believe in prophecy or not, but I hope you do. Because if you look around, Micah's word is coming true. Right here in our midst, and in the church down the street, and in the one down the street from that, and across this nation and many nations across the globe, the nations are streaming to learn the ways of the God of Jacob. Mike envisions not only a transformed witness, though, of the people of God, but he also envisions transformed relationships amongst the nations. Look at verse 3. He says, nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Could you imagine it? Those 27 conflicts gone. Could you imagine it? No more war. What would the world be like if all the resources, the creativity, the brain power, the, the financial resources were no longer directed towards war and defense? I mean, some of you are, are, are part of that industry, and you're really smart. And, and we need it now. But what if we didn't? The UK, that small little island, it spent $59.2 billion on defense. Russia, 61.7. It's before the war. India, 72.9 billion. China spends 252 billion. And the US of A, it's two through 11. Don't even add up to the 778 billion that the US spends on defense. What would we do with all that money? If there was no more war, if there was no more defense, 
if there was no more need for it? Well, Micah has an idea. We'd feed people. Look at verse 3. They shall beat their swords to plowshares and their spears to pruning hooks. Plowshares, agricultural instruments that, that farm a community. Pruning hooks that, that prune vines. In other words, messes, weapons of mass destruction, Micah says, are going to be transformed into tools for agricultural production. Uh, tools which supported death will now support life. And this too has implications for the present. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God. Even so, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. The Mozambican Civil War started in 1977. It lasts for about 13 years. It was between the ruling Marxist government and the anti-communist insurgent forces. Uh, it left Mozambique devastated. Uh, the infrastructure was completely destroyed. Hospitals, rail lines, roads, and schools. One million people were killed or starved, and five million were displaced. Direct peace talks started happening in 1988. They came at the instigation of a group of lay Christians who were led by an African bishop. They were organized by the Mozican Church Council and Anglican Bishop Dom Dennis Singulain. It was these agents of mediation and reconciliation that brought the talks that ended the war. Archbishop Singulain said that, that he had this idea. He said, well, we have all these weapons out there, and now that the war is ending, what are we going to do with them? And so he had the idea to surrender weapons in exchange for tools. He called it the Transforming Arms into Tools Project. People would come, villages would come with their weapons, and they would surrender weapons, like a thousand weapons, and then they would get a tractor in return. Some were getting sewing machines. Others were getting beds, building equipment. Some 600,000 weapons were surrendered in exchange for tools that built life and sustained life. I wonder where he got that idea, that bishop. What are they going to do with all the weapons? They actually commissioned artists to use these weapons to make art. One of the most poignant pieces is a tree. The tree is made out of AK-47s and Walter 42s and German MP40s and British 485s. You know what they called it? The tree of life. We are to be a people who are about the business of reconciliation. Who pursue the things that, are make, that make for peace. And what are the things that make for peace? Look at verse 4. Because we get a picture there. Every man shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. Now that's transformation. 
poor people, tenant farmers were being driven off their, driven off their land, driven away from their property by the rich. They were having the shirts off their backs taken as they did so. They were being exploited and they were living in fear because their, conf- their property could be compensated, confiscated, seized at any moment. And now what happens? They sit in peace under the shade of their own fig tree, each one. What Micah presents is transformed conditions. Each person sits under his own fig tree. Did you know that when God made this world, he did not make it with scarcity? He made it enough for everyone to have satisfying work and to enjoy the fruits of their work. That's how God made the world. Every person, every person has the right to work and to enjoy the fruit of their work. And any right to private property, this is the biblical view, Any right to private property is qualified by everyone's right to work and to enjoy the fruit of their work. Here, every person sits under their own vine, their own fig tree, that they work and they get to enjoy it. There are transformed conditions, but these transformed conditions are rooted in a more fundamental transformation, a transformation of human hearts. Look, it says, no one shall make them afraid. What is presented here is a world where there is contentment. Each person sits under their own fig tree. They're content with that fig tree. They're content with that vine. They don't need another vine. They don't need more vines. And trust. They're not worried that people are going to steal their vines or their fig tree. Contentment interest. What are the things that make for peace? Well, what are the things that make for war? Is it not discontentment? That we need more? That we need to grab more or have more or steal more? Isn't that what causes conflicts, not just between nations, but within nations, and not just within nations, but within people and families and, and at work, that, 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 that we have this kind of jealousy and this discontent? And fear, a lack of trust, because we're worried that other people will do that, will take it away from us, that other people are thinking that way. Aren't all our conflicts really rooted in discontentment and fear? James 4, James writes, asks this penetrating question, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, your desires, your inordinate desires are at war amongst you? You desire and do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. So what Micah envisions is a day when all our longings are satisfied and we are content and a day when we have peace because everyone else's are as well and there's trust. This is what the gospel of Jesus Christ I would submit to you brings. Because what Jesus came to do is to to give us the satisfaction of our souls. He said, I can be your satisfaction. 
I can be the water of life that you've always been looking for. And if you come to me, I will satisfy you. In this life, approximately. And the next one, ultimately. And because in the next one, ultimately, you can live with approximate dis dissatisfaction in this life. You don't have to steal and grab and worry because, because Jesus is going to fulfill his promises to satisfy your soul. And he brings peace. Because in the world that he is creating, there's no more sin. There's no more jealousy. He doesn't let that in. The vision, this transformed vision, is amazing that Micah presents, but it doesn't come quickly or easily, mind you. The rest of this chapter and into the next half of chapter 5, what we see is the path to this glorious future. And it is hard. It is filled with heartache and hardship. It, Micah describes it as, as being in labor and the pains of labor. And as most of you know, that is not over as quickly as we would want. It lasts. But eventually, eventually through the heartache and the hardship, through the toil and the tears, through the stress and the strain, eventually is born a king, a ruler. Out of Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5, that we will see next week. And his name is Jesus. And he came, and in the world that he inhabited, because he entered into our world, he did not enter into a world that was peace. He entered into a world at war. And there was strain, and there was stress, and there was hardship. And he, like a mother hen, grieving over children. He, through his own body, suffered. But through that suffering, he gave birth to the church. What he did on the cross in taking your sin and my sin, he gave birth to you and me, and not just you and me, but to a whole new creation because on the third day he rose again from the dead. The transformation that God promised in Micah is already starting to come into this world in Jesus Christ. And so that we can be sure that one day, someday, this future will come true. That it already has started to in Jesus' own person and work. And so we can live it out today, knowing that God is going to do what he promised. Lord, we thank you for this word, for this hope. We ask that you would make us your witnesses and agents of reconciliation in this world. In whatever sphere of life you have called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.